Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Again, Ruth 4 13 through 22. Let's hear the word of the Lord. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. Appreciate you reading that, brother. We, we had to go through seven people before anybody would dare read the last part there. So <laughs> Let's pray as we begin. O oh Lord, we, we are always needing to hear afresh of your greatness. It is your greatness and your glory, your majesty, your goodness and holiness and faithfulness that alone can fill our lives and alone sustain us through all that we go through in this broken world. Lord, you and all that you are to us in Christ... You are our only hope, and you are our life. You are our, you are our resource for good in this world. So we come to you asking that uh, as your word is set forth, and as we seek to put Ruth in the perspective of the scriptures, that you would pour out your spirit and bless us. For by, apart from you, we are heart of heart, and we don't hear, we don't retain, we don't apply. Lord, apart from you, I even forget what I've preached on days later. Lord, we pray, give us grace that we would live out this precious word of the Lord Jesus Christ to his honor and glory. Amen. I like those maps. I've talked about this before. I like those historic maps, which there are a series of overlays like historically uh, taking you, for instance, a map of America and its first settlement, you know, beginning, I guess, from your perspective on the East Coast over here, a little sliver of 
uh, settlement, and then you lay the next map and the next map, and you see the growth of uh, the colonies and the states and the Louisiana Purchase and the Mexican acquisition. And finally, when you lay out the 1920 uh, map, uh, the final 48 states are together because Oklahoma came in in 1907 and Arizona and and uh, New Mexico in 1912. So it's, it's cool to see that thing, you know, map after map be laid out. In the scriptures, uh, there's the same kind of thing in a sense as God's covenant is unveiled in the scripture. And when the final New Testament map is laid down, it's interesting because not only do you have the vivid colors of the New Testament itself, but the New Testament in its light shines into the rest of the map of the Old Testament. And colors that were latent there, colors that were more or less hidden in some ways, are bathed in this rich color from the New Testament. And so that light bursts into the Old Testament and ignites it with things that you couldn't see before. The color was there, but now it is brought out in a, in a vividness, in a beauty. And not only that, but you begin to see amazing features and details and structures and relationships in the Old Testament that you never could have seen before because of the light of this final map. And then this final whole map just becomes a a rich tapestry uh, that you can explore and enjoy the whole of your life. And so what our question then as we come to the end of Ruth is, what do we see in Ruth given the final overlay of the New Testament. How does Ruth fit into the whole tapestry? How does, how does Ruth's threads weave into it? Uh, also, following this uh, map analogy, uh, imagine having a piece of treasure map, and though you can enjoy the fine detail and artwork of your piece of the treasure map, you're kind of wondering, I wonder what this goes to. You know, I wonder how this fits in the overall And then perhaps some years later, you come across the rest of the map and you fit that piece in there. And and finally, then you see where it goes. And only then do you really understand that little portion and the part it plays in the context of the whole. And so that's what we want to do with Ruth. How does it fit into the whole? Well, one uh, thing this morning I want to talk about is uh, God's magnificent restoration. And... Two weeks from now, I'll, I'll be gone next week to uh, uh, Mississippi for a wedding. Happens to be the wedding of my own son. Uh, but um, And uh, then I'll be back and we'll uh, do hit the magnificent uh, Redeemer uh, on the day we have communion. Uh, but God's magnificent restoration, and I want to look at it from the standpoint of Naomi and then also from the standpoint of Ruth because we have a little bit different thing to learn from each of their restorations. As we've seen, of course, Naomi lost all the resources of land and sustenance. She lost her husband and her sons. But in the end of the story, she who had lost her children, as they're called, these grown boys in chapter 1, verse 5, has this uh, Ruth's own child placed in her bosom, embracing not only this precious baby, but the sign of her whole future care. This baby represents her full restoration. Then we learn 
that this baby will become the grandfather of King David, arguably the greatest figure in the whole Old Testament, who then becomes the model for the future Messiah of Israel and the world. And on top of that, Ruth and her son Obed and his son Jesse and his son David are all included in the first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew 1, which opens up with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so, in effect, if you put all of that together, in effect, God took away Naomi's husband and sons and ultimately gave her and Israel and the whole world the Lord Jesus Christ in their place. I would call that a magnificent restoration of what she had lost. A magnificent restoration. And I want us to see in that the pattern that God uses throughout the Scripture and the signal, the sign of final, glorious restoration, magnificent restoration for the people of God. So that we see in our context that any loss that we ever endure is only setting us up for final magnificent restoration and in fact will be used by God to help piece together our restoration. So nothing ever breaks us down ultimately. It only becomes God's instrument as he bends it and shapes it and uses it for our restoration. And so, of course, we say, yes, cry out to God over your loss and pain and over the injustice and tragedy of this world. Yes, let's pour out our hearts to each other as we are hurting in various ways. Scripture urges us to do this, but let's always be comforted by this glorious promise of his restoration and to uh, comfort one another with the promise of God's Restoration, And in that context, we must be careful of always or even sometimes thinking about what we don't have in this world. It's amazing how often uh, believers can be caught up with what we don't have in this world. And interestingly, Naomi, in the first chapter, as she came back into Bethlehem, And her cry of of bitterness was not wrong in itself, but uh, the commentators point out her cry was absent of any acknowledgement that Ruth was by her side. No acknowledgement that, look, I've got this woman, this Moabite who's confessed Yahweh and she's attended me here. This gives me hope as I come back into Bethlehem. Nothing of that at all. And yet, to these same women, these same women to whom she spoke that day, would say to her at the end of this book that Ruth was better to Naomi than seven sons, the proverbial seven sons, the fullness of a heritage of sons. That she, this Moabite daughter-in-law, turned out to be better than a whole houseful of sons. And so, Naomi couldn't see it at that point. She was so bowed down with the sadness of her life. And so we must beware at looking at our circumstances with no hope, no trust 
in, and I'm going to keep saying it, the magnificent restoration that God is bringing about in your life and the corporate life of His people and will finally ultimately bring about in our lives. It's amazing in the New Testament how much is fixed upon that final restoration. Peter says it in the first chapter. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you in that day. It must be one of the least practiced graces in Christianity is that our hope is absolutely fixed on what we truly believe to be the most magnificent, awesome restoration that fills our heart with joy and comfort and expectation and brings light to every day of our lives. I would dare say that that's a very little practiced joy among Christians. We get down payments in our restoration here in many shapes and forms. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. And then you and I, along with all the people of God, will be restored in that last day in ways you and I cannot even imagine. Believe it, brothers and sisters, as you can see it in in Naomi, right as she's bitter, right as she's crying out, you can even see it as you're reading because you're on the outside reading this story and you even know the end from the beginning and you almost want to say to her, Naomi, it's really going to be great. I mean, you don't know it, but all this that happened to you, you just won't believe what God's going to do for you. And if you could sit there and talk to her, you would. And it shows that God is always doing you good even when the worst that happens. As the worst is happening, you've got to say to yourself, He is somehow doing me amazing good through this. And I will trust Him. Even as Naomi could have and then eventually did trust Him uh, that He would do her good. Remember, the worst things are simply servants of Christ to do His ultimate will. Nothing can stand against Christ's purpose. He is not an ineffective king. (laughs) He is not. And nothing can stand away of His purpose. Everything must serve His purpose to do you good. So, Naomi. But Ruth has some unique things, perhaps, as we look at this idea of restoration. She gave up everything, didn't she, to follow Naomi? Everything, humanly speaking. In that culture, it was the uh, absolute essential sacrifice of all that everyone knew uh, of security. Uh, Her only hope, humanly speaking, in the first chapter, was to return to Moab, uh, to her own people and her own family. That was the most likely hope she had to end up with a husband and home and a heritage of children. But she left everything because she was a worshiper of Yahweh. She left everything. And the the way Boaz put it in chapter 2, everyone knows that you left everything, your family and Moab, everything, to to put yourself under the wing of Yahweh. Everybody here knows what you did. That kind of idea. And so, she was in his hands alone, even though it meant a foreigner in Israel 
It meant, humanly speaking, to join in the destitution of this poor widow, Naomi. But for her, that was where life was. And she didn't care. She wanted to be with Yahweh and his people, and she devoted herself to Naomi in this way. Phyllis Tribble wrote, Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing, contrasting her with Abraham. No God has called her. No deity has promised her blessing, as Abraham had. No human being has come to her aid. She lives and chooses without a support group. And she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection, indeed of death. Foreigners often were put to death, found no life in a foreign country. Consequently, not even Abraham's leap of faith surpasses this decision of Ruth's. And there is more. Not only has Ruth broken with family, country, and faith, but she has also reversed sexual allegiance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than to the search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. There is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. And you think of the promises and the wishes upon her in the book of Ruth of how... Naomi herself prayed that God would grant her rest in the house of a husband. And how Boaz says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And later in chapter 3, Naomi herself says, my daughter, should I not see Seek rest for you that it may be well with you. Later, Boaz promises that he will be uh, her redeemer. And so, not only do we see these things wonderfully, wonderfully fulfilled in the passage that we read, as she's married to Boaz and bears this child, not only, though, is she is that, but she's also the one who brings into the world this grandfather of David, And then, as we've said, she's listed in the genealogy of Christ. And interestingly, when you look at that, this former pagan Moabite woman, she's listed there with four other women. She's listed there with, uh, of course, there's Ruth, Moabite. You know, Moab was the... uh, nation that drew Israel away to worship false gods when Israel was in the wilderness before they even came into Canaan. That was the sense of what it meant to be a Moabite. But she's in the genealogy. She's joined by, of course, Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. She's joined with by Tamar, who posed as a prostitute and committed incest with her father-in-law. And then she's joined with Rahab, who was a real live prostitute practicing in Jericho at the time we find her in Joshua. And you would think, you know, that Matthew would have kept these women in the background, you know? Like, if you really want a nice, wholesome story and and you want to set Christ forth 
in the purest of terms, why would you include these women? I mean, you'd think his editors would know better than that, you know, to clean this up a little bit. And you and I, of course, would want to hide any record or play down anything that would associate us with wrong. I mean, we all have our own versions of, I didn't inhale or I didn't have sex with that woman. In a genealogy like this, Matthew didn't even have to include any woman. And if you're going to include women, there are a lot of other mothers that would be a lot more noble than these four, at least as it appears. But he's purposely picked these four women. And it shows, as Dagweed, uh, one commentator, or written an exposition on Ruth, he's a, a professor out at Westminster, California. He says, it shows that the Lord Jesus is, quote, not separated from sinners, but descended from a long line of them. During his lifetime, surrounded by them, And then he says, if he kept shocking company when he was alive, Jesus also kept scandalous company when he died. Thinking of the thieves. He goes on to say, to save sinners, he could not keep his distance, but had to come alongside them, identify with them, become their friend, and perform the greatest act of friendship in dying for them. And sometimes we don't think about that, but he, he became and was called the friend of sinners. And then, as he said himself, there's no greater thing that a friend can do than lay down his life for his friends. And so he calls sinners his friend and even lays down his life for them. And he associates them in his genealogy. And he mixed with them and died alongside of them. And you see, in this opening chapter of the New Testament, it's an advertisement, it's an announcement of restoration, of the most magnificent restoration. Right on the front porch of the New Testament, in a genealogy, we are being told that this whole house of the New Testament is a house of grace and mercy, a place for sinners of any and every kind, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've done it, or said it, or thought it, no matter who you did it to, there is for you magnificent restoration in Christ. And so Ruth becomes a specific part of that uh, opening salvo of grace as you open the New Testament. And let's underscore that word magnificent. It's not as though the New Testament says, hey, you know, yeah, we're going to fix you. We'll, we'll put a splint on your broken leg and you'll hobble around and patch over your eye and we'll give you a cot and a chamber pot and a meal every day. But at least you won't be judged for your sin. Just be happy with it. And at least you wouldn't end up in hell, you know. No. No, we're made royalty. Sinners are made the kings and queens of the new creation. It doesn't make sense, really. Something that Christ earns for people who didn't deserve it, and then he just turns around and shares it with them. <laughs> I, you know, growing up, you just I couldn't stand 
stand to share my accomplishment with somebody else. I did it. I deserve it. And I couldn't stand to be blamed for something. I did not do that. You're not going to blame me for it. Jesus takes on not only the blame, just some word that you did it, but the actual punishment because he unites himself with this. And then he turns around and shares all of his kingdom with these sinners. <laughs> and, and right at the outset of the gospel, Christ promises a kingdom. He doesn't say, now, if you're going to, if, if you'll do this and this and this and this, then I'll see if you maybe will earn the right to have a kingdom. He declares at, at the outset, he has won a kingdom. That's how the gospel comes to us. He is already reigning over the universe. And he promises if you entrust yourself to him, that you will reign with him on that day. As it says in 1 Corinthians 3, whether it's the world or life or death or the present or the future, everything belongs to you. So you're standing there at least somewhat aware of your own sin against God and your sin against others. Something of your own pathetic, petty selfishness which afflicts every one of us. And you realize you're offering me everything before I've done anything. You're, you're offering me in everything. Nothing depends upon me, does it? I deserve nothing. I earn nothing. I bring nothing to the table to get your acceptance and to receive all of these blessings. No, no, you don't. You can't. And so Paul says in Ephesians 2, my paraphrase, it's not of your own doing. It's the free gift of God. So there's not one person who can boast about what he or she receives. So hard to understand pure gift. So hard to understand the magnificent restoration that goes past anything that we could imagine. That doesn't make sense. It's not in accordance with anything good that we've ever been. It's all mercy. And so, Daguid, I'm quoting extensively from him this particular way. I've tried to hit on different people during the course of our study. He says, the door to God's kingdom is open only to those who know they have nothing to offer God. It's open only to outsiders like Ruth, to those desperate enough to try anything like Tamar, to those who've utterly despaired of making any sense out of life like Naomi. It is open to those like some in the early church in Corinth, as Paul says, they were former idolaters, swindlers, prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, slanderers, drunkards. And I would add, it's open to those of you who in your pride think you're doing fine on your own. To those who are successful and together in the world's eyes and perhaps in your own eyes and yet... You don't really love God. You don't feel or acknowledge your dependence on Him. You don't really honor Him and thank Him and submit to Him. In the end, you're really your own little God. And you don't even realize it. It's open to you, the kingdom. He even offers the kingdom to us who would have, all of us in one way or shape or like this, 
who are our own little gods. But those outwardly successful need forgiveness every bit as much as anyone who has outwardly failed in many ways in this life. And I guarantee you, your own failures reach deeper and farther than you dare to recognize. Than you dare to recognize. But it is open to you. Even in the blindness of your pride and boastfulness, it's open to you in mercy. And if we're a people who have acknowledged our desperate need of the work of Jesus Christ, and if we take our place alongside Ruth and Tamar and Bathsheba and Rahab and Paul the persecutor and Peter the denier of Christ and David who was involved in a scheme of adultery and murder, how will we who are being transformed and restored, how will we act toward others who've yet to begin that transformation and restoration. And again, here's a a long quote from Dogweed, this professor. He's talking about how Ruth was received in Israel and eventually, of course, into this genealogy. And he he asked these pointed questions of us. Can people like Ruth find a similar welcome in our churches and in our homes? Are they places where the last, the least, and the lost can come without feeling looked down upon? Are our churches safe places where people whose lifestyles are notorious in the community can come without being stared at and judged? Is there any danger, and he likes for there to be this danger, but get how he puts it. Is there any danger of our fellowship being known as that church where all those sinners go? Or are we good only at welcoming those who are already somewhat religious? Those who at least in some measure already speak the language of the church community and whose faces already fit. There's a serious challenge here for each of us to ponder, not just for pastors and church leaders. Each of us has a role to play in what people feel when they come through our church doors. Will we welcome them? Will anyone sit with them or speak to them afterward? Will someone make them feel special, important, wanted, no matter how messy their lives are? He says, will you make them feel like a person of eternal worth and value? And I believe by His grace, He is making us into that kind of fellowship and we will be that kind of people, that kind of church Because you see, the magnificence of our restoration, the glory of it, the overwhelming nature of it enables us in turn to offer a magnificent love to others. Or as we put it in the past, describing the goodness of Boaz and Ruth, which came out of, you know, it it seemed to come out of nowhere in a sense. It, It was pitted against all hope that there would be that kind of love. We called it shocking goodness. Shocking goodness comes from people who've, in a sense, received shocking, magnificent restoration and love from God. So, finally, just a mention. The magnificent restoration is so wonderful, brothers and sisters, that in the end, we really don't think of loss. We just think of gain. No matter how much we give up, we we really don't think of loss. We think of gain. 
Ruth gave up so much, but I really don't think in the years to come, as she held that child, and I don't know how many future events she was able to live to see, but just in the comfort and wonder of being there and seeing all these things happen, that she ever looked back and thought, I wish I'd just stayed in Moab. You know, I gave up so much by leaving Moab. In the end, no one can talk about what he or she gave up for Christ, only what we gain. Here's how Jesus put it, two tightly packed parables back to back in Matthew 13. Describing the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's not his onerous obligation, you know. Well, got to give everything up. Looking back over his shoulder at all that he gave up. Mm -mm. He's so happy at what he found. He's not thinking about what he's losing. He's so taken up with what he has. And then he follows that again. And by repetition, of course, Christ is, you know, putting it in bold. It's the Hebrew style, putting it in bold letters, underscoring it, yellow highlight, whatever, you know. (laughs) Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it because he found a pearl of great value, the treasure of Jesus Christ. How did Paul put it? Whatever gain I had and all the privileges And all the righteousness that I had in my life and depended on, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We sang... Lamb of God, we fall before Thee, humbly trusting in Thy cross. That alone be all our glory. All things else are vain and loss. Or as Don Moen put it in his song, Shout to the Lord, nothing compares to the promise I have in You. There are a lot of promises, hundreds, thousands of promises out there. Nothing compares to that promise. But even in this Christ-only focus, it is Christ Himself who says, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Luke 18. And the parallel in Mark 10 says this similar, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is not driving a hard bargain here. He's not. He's asking you to give up very little for magnificence. He's deeded the Father all things to the Son, and now the Son offers Himself and says, I, stand, I have died for sinners. My 
work will be applied to you so that you will be forgiven of your sins. You will be accepted into the presence of the Father. You will become a child of God and an heir of all things. And you will begin to undergo your restoration and transformation. And I will be with you all your days. The amazing thing is, in Him you have everything. Without Him... If you refuse Christ, you refuse creation, you refuse all relationship, you will refuse life itself forever. You lose everything. I urge you, entrust yourself to this magnificent, magnificent King. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you, we praise you, giving yourself so freely and fully for our benefit. We thank you that you stopped at nothing to save your people, dying in our place, bearing our punishment, winning for us an eternal kingdom, and so uniting yourself to your people that all of our obligations, all of our loss, of our liabilities became yours. O Lord, we worship you. We would afresh give ourselves into your hands. We would afresh, Lord, rest in the magnificent restoration that even now is taking place in our lives, corporately and individually, that we are seeking to spread throughout this world and that will finally be ushered in with the new heavens and the new earth. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away Then shall my soul with rapture trace The wonders of